Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for making yourself known to us uh, in your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending us your spirit. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would stir our affections um, to, to, love, to love you um, and uh, to be obedient to you with a joyful heart. Um, we pray that this time of, of uh, reflection upon uh, the words in which you have inspired and written down for our benefit, uh, that uh, we, would, we would understand your love all the better. We would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ all the better. And we would understand that we are sons and daughters of the living God. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The third chapter of Zechariah is one of my favorite uh, in all of scripture. Uh, I return to it over and over again as a source of, of great comfort. This chapter, like the other chapters we've already visited in Zechariah, contains a vision. We've seen horsemen riding different colored horses, craftsmen sawing off horns, a man with a measuring tape, a wall of fire, and now we see a high priest clothed in filthy garments. This isn't old clothing that has a few stains on it. The Hebrew word for filthy here conveys the idea of garments soiled by feces. It's an ugly picture. But before we begin to explore the meaning of this vision, it's important to point out what is said to Joshua in verse 8. The, the text is printed in your bulletin for you. Look and you will see Joshua told that he and his colleagues, the, the other priests who are with him, are an omen, a sign of things to come. The angel of the Lord who spoke these words to Joshua was speaking also to us. In fact, he is instructing us how to interpret and understand this vision. This vision is not about Joshua per se. He is serving as a representative figure. The story about Joshua is a story about all the people whom he represents, which makes sense when you consider the fact that Joshua was a high priest. It was written into the very job description of the high priest that this is a representational position. In fact, in Leviticus 16, the high priest was assigned the job of offering a sacrifice once a year on behalf of God's people. It was called the Day of Atonement. The high priest and only the high priest would prepare himself through ritual cleansings and he would clothe himself in clean linen garments and symbolic vestments. And then he would go alone into what was called the Holy of Holies, the place where God lived amongst his people. It was a dangerous thing to approach God and enter in his presence. So dangerous that the high priest would attach bells to the hem of his robes and tie a rope to his ankle so that the people could hear him moving around and pull him out if the bells ever stopped ringing. The silence would have meant that God had killed this high priest for approaching him unworthily or acting inappropriately in his presence. If that happened, the rope ensured that they could at least get him out. On that day of atonement, the high priest alone would approach God on behalf of the people. 
He would offer a sacrifice before God first for himself and then for the people. It was an elaborate and intricate process through which the people secured God's forgiveness for those sins they had committed that year. It was a really important day for God's people. And it was the job of the high priest to keep himself holy and pure in in preparation for his representational service in the presence of God. It was understood that the high priest was not perfect. This is why he was instructed in Leviticus 16 to kill a bull for his own own sins before killing a goat for the sins of the people. But in Zechariah 3, it is revealed just how unclean the high priest actually was. He was clothed in stinking garments, smeared with excrement. The scene in Zechariah 3 is a courtroom scene. The defendant is Joshua, the high priest. The prosecuting attorney, the accuser, is Satan. And the judge is God. From all appearances, this should be a pretty easy case for Satan to make. After all, Joshua is clothed in filthy garments. His guilt is obvious. He is literally wearing it on his body. And the reason why Satan has chosen to bring a case against Joshua, the high priest, is because of what we've already stated about Joshua. He is a representative of the people. If Satan can secure God's condemnation against Joshua, then what hope do the people have? And if Joshua is clothed in filthy garments, the man whose literal job it was to maintain purity, then what hope do the people in the streets have? In Joshua, Satan sees an opportunity to induce God's judgment of all his people. In other words, Satan saw you in Joshua. And because of this, we are invited to see ourselves in him as well. Joshua was the one standing before God in this vision. And yet we are invited to imagine ourselves standing there with him wearing the same thing he was wearing, heads hung low, eyes on the floor, just waiting with dread in our souls to hear a guilty verdict. But the most amazing thing happens. God opens his mouth to speak, and the first words out of his mouth are not a rebuke of Joshua, nor of us, but of Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this man not a brand plucked from the fire? God issues his verdict before Satan speaks a single word. He issues his verdict even before we are told what Joshua is wearing. It's only after we hear God's verdict that we even learn Joshua was dressed in filthy garments and clearly guilty. Shockingly, God defends this guilty man. He behaves in this scene as both judge and defending attorney. He pleads our case and pardons us all at the same time. The case, he argues, has nothing to do with us, actually. As we've already said multiple times, it's obvious we're guilty. His pardon rests upon his divine choice, which is the foundation undergirding his love. He appeals only to his choice of Joshua in his defense of the guilty man. 
Choice is the, the purest inspiration for love. Love based on choice will endure long after a beloved becomes unlovely. It's the security of this sort of love that we all long for and we, we seek out from others. We want to be free to be fully ourselves without compromising our ability to be loved. We desire a love in which we can make mistakes, we can act silly, we can say something stupid, we can look unattractive, we can behave in unbecoming ways and yet still be loved because our beloved has chosen and committed apart from any of those things to love us. This sort of love is rare amongst human beings. It's the sort of love that couples commit to on their wedding day and strive to fulfill in their marriage. In his book on marriage, Tim Keller points out that wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. A wedding should not be primarily a celebration of how loving you feel now. That can safely be assumed. Rather, in a wedding, you stand up before God, your family, and all the main institutions of society, and you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future, regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. Future love can only be be guaranteed through choice. And this, my brothers and sisters, is the assurance that God gives to those whom he loves. He loves you now, and he will love you in the future because choice undergirds and motivates his love for a people who regularly appear before him in filthy clothes, alternatively accused by Satan or by their own feelings of shame and of guilt. You are a brand plucked from the fire chosen one. In this scene in Zechariah 3, Satan sought to secure the condemnation of God's people, but God seeks to secure their salvation, to pluck them from the fire, like one would pull a glowing brand out of a fire. He knows they're guilty, and yet he loves them nonetheless and pulls them time and time again out of the fire that threatens to destroy them, the fire of anger or of lust or of pride or of envy or of the many sins which afflict you and afflict me. Instead of giving us what we deserve, we see how he treats us in verses 4 and 5. He removes our guilt from us, symbolized in the stripping of Joshua. And he clothes us instead with undeserved righteousness, symbolized in the festal apparel, the party clothes that are then put on the naked high priest. The transformation is so thrilling to Zechariah that he can't contain himself as he watches. No longer an onlooker, onlooker, Zechariah inserts himself now as a participant in the vision and getting carried away, he shouts, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they did. And the summary of all this action in verse 5 states that despite Zechariah's unsolicited interruption, God views it, viewed it as a contribution, and he was pleased with the outcome. The summary states that they put a clean turban on Joshua's head. They clothed him with party clothes. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. God saw 
all that he had done, and it was very good to him. Joshua now stood before God wearing the clothes of righteousness that God had provided for him. They clothed, thus clothed, Joshua no longer had any reason to be afraid of standing in the presence of God. No bells, no rope are required. Satan had been rebuked. Joshua's guilt had been removed. And now he stood before God clothed in the righteousness that God both required and provided. And at this moment, we must remember that we have been invited to see ourselves in Joshua or even as Joshua, his experience is the experience of anyone who stands before God appealing to the life of Christ as our hope. We are all, myself included, guilty before God of sin which has left us reeking and revolting before him. Satan is on one side accusing us, arguing the same old tired case that he's been bringing against God's people for millennia. He points at our soiled garments and he says, look at how bad these people are. And God responds to these accurate yet evil accusations the same way that he always has. He points to Jesus Christ standing on the other side of us and he says, I do not consider their badness, but his goodness. You see, God the Son took on flesh And he became a human being for us so that he might live a human life that was truly pure and holy. His garments were not soiled by sin, and at his death they were stripped from him. His clean, seamless garments were viciously pulled from his body, and he was crucified naked and rejected by God. He did this so that justice might be served on our behalf. In Jesus, we again see God acting as God and ju- as, as both judge and defender. The Father declares us guilty, and the Son comes down to pay the penalty for our offense. Now, through this divine act of love and grace, we are forgiven. And the, the clean clothes that were stripped from Christ, the clothes of his righteousness, are put on us So that God looks at us and he sees his son and he rebukes Satan for attempting to even bring a charge against those whom he has chosen to love now and in the future, regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. He does not look at our badness, but at Christ's goodness with which we are clothed through faith. In Christ, we can stand before our God, our King, and say, I'm clean, I'm clean. When our thoughts accuse us and when Satan tempts us, our response should be the bold and defiant declaration that I'm clean. The sin does not define me and I do not have to fall to temptation because I'm clean. This is admittedly a, a vision of ourselves that feels inconsistent with the fact that although clean, we continue to sin. The righteousness of Christ feels at time like an ill-fitting garment that we must grow into. But nevertheless, it covers us, filling us with joy. And it calls us, making us eager to repent of those things which continue to soil our feet. 
You see, when John tells us about Jesus washing his disciples' feet during the Last Supper, he records that Peter first refuses such humble service from one he has come to believe is the Son of God in the flesh. But after Jesus insists, then Peter asks him to wash his whole body and not just his feet. And in response to this request, Jesus says that one who has, been, one who has bathed is clean and has no need to wash except for his feet. Jesus is telling Peter in the symbolic language common to John's gospel that Peter is clean on account of his faith in Christ. To use the imagery of Zechariah 3, 3, Peter has been clothed with the festal garments of Christ's righteousness. But his inheritance of Christ's righteousness doesn't keep his feet from still getting dirty with the grime of sin. The righteousness of Christ that we inherit doesn't mean we suddenly stop sinning. Satan still has a point that we are bad people. Our feet still get dirty with our sin. He has only to lift the hem of our white robes to expose the filth underneath. Our inheritance of Christ's righteousness doesn't mean we have stopped sinning. And yet it calls us to do so. To walk in God's ways, to keep his requirements. This is the life to which Joshua is called in verse 7, after having been stripped of his sin and clothed in Christ's righteousness. The inheritance of Christ's righteousness comes to us as an act of divine grace by which God purchases our souls and our strength. Having been clothed in Christ's righteousness, we are now called to live up to it, to grow into the clothes, to fill them out. The Apostle Paul says this is an upward call. Therefore, we must strive with great effort to live up to Christ's righteousness, which is ours. And we do so, therefore, without fear or shame or despair when we inevitably fail. We strive with the joy of a person already forgiven and set free. We have nothing to lose and yet everything to gain. By spending ourselves in an effort to fill out the clothes that now hang in unfamiliar ways from our bodies. This is what Joshua is told in verse 7, and in him what we are told as well. That if you respond to the good news of God's grace, the news that you have been clothed with Christ's righteousness despite your obvious guilt, if you respond to that good news with obedience, by walking in God's ways and keeping his requirements, then you will enjoy the authority and right of access to God, and he'll send you out to work. If you approach him in humility and penitence, acknowledging your unworthiness to approach apart from the garments he provided for you at the door, then you will always be received and accepted and sent away clean. You can boldly come and go before God with a clean conscience at any time and in any place. The door is always open. The king is on the throne and he is always willing to host you and to hear you as you intercede for the world, for our nation, for our city, for your neighbor, for your friend and your family. One of the demands of grace, the responsibility to having such access to God is that we pray that others 
would experience it as well. And through their restoration and salvation, as well as our own, the world would be made new. The kingdom would grow in our midst. God gives us access so that we might have joy and so that we might speak to him and ask him for whatever is good and necessary like a child might ask her father for help. By his grace, God has given us a beautiful inheritance and through that grace, he has invested us with a great responsibility to pray and to work for the good of a people and of a world that is broken by sin. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, as Hebrews says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, dressed in Christ's righteousness and walking in his way, we can approach the judge with confidence and with hope because he is both judge and juror and he has declared you clean. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.